This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Also, as you probably already know, I have a Substack where I post reflections and also host a spin-off podcast, Words from My Teachers, featuring readings from the books written by and about my teachers from the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism and the Kabose Dharma Legacy. The lineage from which the Bright Dawn teachings derived is unique in the Dharma sphere, and its teachings are what I built my podcast and virtual Sangha approach on. As a special incentive to listeners of this Everyday Buddhism podcast, I'm offering a special promo code for a subscription to my Substack posts and the words from my teacher's podcast. Just click on the link in the show notes by March 31st, 2024, that's March 31st, 2024, to receive 20% off the subscription for one year. Now, back to the episode. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 105 of the Everyday Buddhism Making Every Day Better podcast. In this episode, I talk with Rebecca Lee about her new book, Illumination, A Guide to the Buddhist Method of No Method. Rebecca and I had a conversation in May of 2021 about her previous book, Allow Joy into Our Hearts, Chan Practice in Uncertain Times. Rebecca is a meditation and Dharma teacher in the lineage of Chan Master Shan Yin and founder and guiding teacher of Chan Dharma Community, a Chan Buddhist practice and study community made up of individuals committed to cultivating wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings. Rebecca has two decades of Dharma and meditation teaching experience, leading retreats or teaching at Buddhist centers in North America, Europe, and Asia. She has been featured in several Buddhist publications, including Tricycle, Lion's Roar, and Buddha Dharma. Rebecca is also one of the founding board members of the Gen X Buddhist Teachers Sangha, where she continues to serve as a board member. Rebecca is a sociology professor and lives with her husband in New Jersey. I will put a link to her website, where you can find talks, guided meditations, and a calendar of events. I will also put a link to her book in the show notes. Rebecca was encouraged by her students to write her previous book, Allow Joy Into Our Hearts, as a response to the suffering of the pandemic and all the fear and mistrust that came with it. That book was 
particularly helpful for me during those times, and now even since COVID-19 is still very much with us, and I am one of the many immunocompromised individuals who needs to be much more risk-aware and averse than the bulk of the population. In Allow Joy Into Our Hearts, Rebecca wrote about Chan practice, and she continues to teach the path of Chan Buddhism in this new book, which we will discuss today, Illumination. In Illumination, she dives deeper into the Chan meditation of silent illumination, and deeper still into what causes our suffering and how silent illumination can help us identify and decrease the causes of our suffering. In her book, Rebecca takes us on a fascinating deep dive into the method of no method in silent illumination and guides us in the mechanics of this type of practice. In our conversation, we talked about, among other things, how in our meditation we turn thoughts into enemies rather than allowing thoughts and feelings to be fully experienced and felt. Also about how we tend to try to achieve as meditators, as if a competitive sport. And about the modes of operation, craving, aversion, trance, problem solving, intellectualizing, quietism, and forgetting emptiness. I know this conversation will be helpful to meditators and non-meditators alike, and I hope you'll continue to listen to this conversation with Rebecca, which starts now. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me again. This is your second guest appearance on the podcast, and, and I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's lovely being here again. It's an an honor. (laughs) No, the honor's mine, actually. Um, (laughs) I shared your bio in the introduction of this podcast, and I actually shared your bio in the introduction of the last podcast episode we did. But just to get everybody engaged in who you are, if you could say a little more again about what drew you to the Dharma and particularly what drew you to Chan Buddhism, because especially, you know, in, in our culture, it, it, that's a little, it's a little uh, peripheral to some of the more popular Buddhist schools, like people know about Zen and people know about Tibetan. And, and I was particularly struck by something in your book that you wrote and I don't think you this came up in your earlier book about Chan history. And you explained um, that in China, Chan didn't develop as a separate form of Buddhism like Zen, right? How like Zen developed within Buddhism and then became its own thing, right? And but it came as a component of of Buddhism entirely or in Toto. But with it grew and evolved in Pure Land temples, and that really struck me because, as a primarily as a Jodo Shinsu practitioner, which is a Pure Land practice, um, it really struck me, and it also kind of explained um, why I find your teachings and the practice you describe, how should I say, so comfortable. <laughs> so, can you give me a, more about your like? history into the Dharma, into Chen, and whatever else you want to say about that. 
Well, thank you. That's a big question. I will kind of tr try to remember to address different component components of it. Um, yes, uh, the part of the of the book you were referring to was that kind of quite brief uh, history about Chan, and um, what you were pointing to was uh, sort of like in 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 China in China, uh, Chan Buddhism Chan um, evolved like uh, in 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 the five uh, in the uh, around the sixth century, and um, it, I. I I'm not a uh, an expert in in um, Buddhist history or religious study at all, um, and I learned all this from my own uh, master, Master Shenyan, uh, emphasizing the sort of the it had to do with the way Buddhism evolved uh, in China and uh, in its particular cultural environment. You can say. Uh, many people are probably familiar with the fact that prior to uh, uh, Buddhism traveling, spreading to, to China, uh, they had already had a Taoist uh, practice. And uh, so similar to where everywhere Buddhism goes, it's sort of assimilated into the local culture because the primary purpose is for everyone to benefit from the teaching and the practice so rather than uh, uh, insisting on it having to be in a certain form or certain language and things like that. So it assimilated into a Chinese uh, society at that time like by uh, kind of borrowing language terminology from, uh, from Taoism. And also uh, a number of other things were being uh, being uh, sort of ad ad changed to adapt to the to that uh, society. And uh, but it also has to do with how Chinese culture uh, view religion in general. So like uh, people didn't tend to think that like. Are you a Taoist or are you a Buddhist? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it does. It's like like that's why it's not uncommon for you to be in a temple, and there will be like if if it's a Buddhist temple, there will be Taoist deities there, and uh, people are not very picky or particular about they're all. They, this is not a beauty. why is it here? Like if if folks like it, like a. a find it uh, uh, comforting for them to have also this Taoist deity in this temple, no problem, you know, like everyone's welcome here. And so as a result, um, uh, it, uh, it also developed uh, uh, Chinese Buddhism's not very into like dividing themselves into different sects. So yes, there is Pure Land Buddhism, the Chan Buddhism. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, in the in in especially like a man master uh, talked about how um, in you know uh, after Song Dynasty when many people thought that Chan had kind of declined and like it just sort of like slowly disappeared which wasn't really the case from his own research it sort of like changed form and um, in up to the kind of more like closer to the early modern. Uh, era, uh, the prim prim primary way that Chan Buddhism uh, sort of, you can say, existed in China was in these kind of big monasteries where both Pure Land practice and Chan practice yeah. are housed yeah. under the same roof. 
yeah. rather than like this is a Chan monastery that's a real <laughs> uh, so the same thing that's happening in the organization right now that um, was founded by Master Shen and Dharma Drum Mountain um, in the West we um, we identify Master Shen as a Chan master but actually in if you go visit the uh, Dharma Drum Mountain in Taiwan you will see that pure land practice also very um active in in the center and among the among the practitioners in the organization and uh, uh often he was talk about how like both like practicing both Pyolan and Chan and or uh it's already been established for example one of the most influential Chan an important Chan master in the in the 20th century master shooting empty cloud you might have heard of him um he you know the the method used to Stabilize the mind is uh, the the practice of reciting the Buddha's name. So and um and also he advocated the Huato, the method, the Chan method of asking, investigating the mind by um uh, penetrating the mind by asking a question. And what's the question? Who's reciting the Buddha's name? So yeah. like who like so like looking into the self, into the mind. So you can see that they are not. They're not in opposition. They're not completely separate. They complement us uh, and support each other. And it shows up institutionally as well that pure land practitioners and Chan practitioners practice under the same roof. And so, um, and that, I guess, like that, uh, this can help me segue into the actually the first part of your question. You know, how did I come to uh, Chan? Um, First, the, the short answer to that is like, I did not look around, shop around different kind of Buddhism. <laughs> and then, you know what? Like, I find like my favorite is Chan. It was, it didn't happen <laughs> like that. In, uh, 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 like, uh, I'm one of those people that, like, sort of, uh, the Dharma just showed up in my life. And, um, so, like uh, you asked me, you know, to kind of tell folks about like how I came to the Dharma, you know, uh, uh, and thinking back, I can I I can tell you the moment where um I was in my in my room when I was in grad school. I still remember I was reading this book by uh, Eric Fromm. Uh, uh, I, I think uh the title is Escape from Freedom, like um uh, so it's uh. And it was the time when, like, things are going well in my life. I was doing well in graduate school, and um, and just sort of like I was somehow kind of feeling I'm looking for something. I don't. I didn't even know really. I, I thought I was looking for anything in particular, but I, I felt I like maybe I need to something. I need to make a change. I need to do something differently. Um. So, and one thing in that book caught my eyes. He was talking about how people, like he was talking about how people escape from freedom, right? And then he was saying how like, and people sometimes they do it by reading a lot. And I'm like, that caught my attention because I was an That's academic. You. And so yeah. like, just like, you know, like, and you were always thought like, you know, like it's good to love to read. And then he's like, but it can be a way for you to be escaping from yourself. And and then I think, you know, in the following paragraph or something, he mentioned something like meditation. That was the first time I heard about meditation. See, now that everyone heard of meditation, yeah, right, back right, then, right. it was like, that was 
not internet yet. <laughs> so like, I didn't even get, you couldn't even go Google, like, what was that all about? It's not like we had internet, but not Google yet. And so like, uh, so like, uh, just gotta have that in my mind. Okay, there's this meditation thing. I didn't know what it was. And then, then I encounter someone uh, who's now my husband, but like back then, he was the person, first person who told me that he practiced meditation. And so, and then I asked him, would you teach me how to meditate? And then he showed me, and then I started meditating like on my own uh, twice a day, um, an hour each time. Uh, wow. And then, and then like, and he was also um, practicing with a, a, a small group led by uh, someone who practiced with Master Shen Yin. And then he would keep telling me about Master Shen Yin, Master Shen Yin. I never heard of Master Shen Yin. I didn't know any Buddhists at that time. But like uh, eventually um, I got some books uh, in, in published in Chinese by Master Shen Yin and got to know his teaching. And I kind of feel kind of the affinity with him. And I also started like joining the meditation group and another very interesting, I still remember that moment was the very first day I joined that group. Someone uh, in that group just returned from attending a seven day intensive retreat in New York. We were in California. So this guy went all the wow. way to New York too. And then he talked about that experience. And I, I had no idea what's a retreat, but I just remember thinking, I want to go to a retreat. <laughs> and so like, uh, and it took a while for me to actually uh, get accepted because they were very, they had very few slots. And I, I uh, talked about my, in the very beginning of my book about my, how, you know, my experience, my first retreat, how I felt this connection with my, with Master Shen Yan. And so like, it felt like I, I have met him like a long time ago. Sure. So, um, so like uh, I never thought I I needed like to look for some anywhere. So it's like I said, it's not because I look at Zen, you know. Like I said, right. oh, I I like Chan. Like that's my favorite. It's like that yeah. that Dharma showed up, and I connected with the uh, this teacher, or maybe reconnected with this teacher, and 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 then I benefited from his teaching um, from the beginning. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's like. I've expressed sometimes that is like sometimes the Dharma finds you. I've had a lot of mm -hmm. teachers say that it's like, you don't necessarily find the Dharma, the Dharma finds you. I think you're right in, in sort of contrasting the time of when that happened in our culture. Um, it's like everybody knows about it now. And like, they're like, Oh, you know, mindfulness and, um, and, you know, shall, shall I study Stoicism or shall I study Buddhism? And do, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, yeah. every, it's absolutely everywhere. And yeah, and actually, you know, when I came to Buddhism, I was lugging books home from the college library, my local college library, <laughs> because mm -hmm. there really was no internet, but no Google button, no internet at all. And and it's yeah. like I found you know Buddhism, um, you know through through the local sangha, you know through a local sangha. There was a Zen center. Well, the Rochester Zen Center is one of the most famous Zen centers. Phil yes. Kaplow around mm -hmm. just up the street here, and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, right in the 
backyard to it was a Tibetan temple. Oh. Uh, and I w- was turned off by Zen practice and went through the backyard garden and ended up parking at the Tibetan center <laughs> and studied Tibet- Tibetan Buddhism for decades uh, before mm. I found or uh, Jodo Shinsu uh, and uh, Zen actually my bright my teacher is a combination of Zen and and Shin a mix so Japanese mm, Mahayana mm-hmm. kind of broadly sort of mm-hmm. like you know if you if you yes. think about the Chinese it, it wasn't like one exclusively or, or over the yes. other it was more mm-hmm. about why are we doing this you know mm-hmm. why, why are we doing this not what are we but why are we doing this and and then mm-hmm. that they found me i wasn't looking for them but when i when i realized that tibetan buddhism i just it wasn't working for me and i felt like a failure and and then i found mm-hmm. this and it worked so good so mm, so yeah so many similarities when you hear people's stories i i always hear those almost those similarities not so much today like i said because it's too it's too much out there. Um, people shop it, you know, people shop it kind of like they shop at the grocery store. So to your book, um, a line from the book that is, was pivotal to me. And I believe uh, is you said the practice of silent illumination is as much of a way of being as a meditation method. Um and a little later, you wrote something that similar. Uh, life does not get in the way. It is the way. Um, both of those lines, obviously, are are, are cousins, partners um, to this. And it, it is about being a way of life rather than being a, a method, even though it is a method. It's a, well, it's like your book. It's the method of no method, right? It's a, so it's really about being in life. And I was struck by the, these two things for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, as you know, the name of my Buddhist, my, my podcast is Everyday Buddhism. So it's the name of my book. It's the name of my Sangha. It's the name of everything that we were taught in my, you know, in, in, in our ministry class was it was, it's about how can you bring it into your life? If you're not bringing it into your life, you might as well not do this thing, right? Um, so, and that's very much what Shin Buddhism is about too, I think. It's because it's about, although some people think of Shin Buddhism as like a, a ripoff of, of, of like Western Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about the pure land as a heaven and this and that. It's It's less about that and much more about um, bringing that into your life, bringing that sense of of illumination, a sense of listening is big in in Shin Buddhism, and I, I even though that that is not something you call out, that is what the illumination part is. I think the listening mm-hmm. to yourself, what's going on mm-hmm. in here, um, and I also think hearing that life does not get in the way; it is the way, and it's not so much of a uh, a method, but a way of being that really speaks right at the accomplishment driven character of the West, right? The, the, the sense of grabbing the goal of enlightenment or some other, um, 
benefit or what's the payoff of doing this? What am I going to get if I do this meditation? Um, so I know I said a lot here, but can you say more to that? Yeah, thank you for um, sharing your thought on sort of what really resonated with you. And um, I think those two lines address, like you said, what uh, a lot of practitioners have encountered. One thing, one is uh, one most common thing is uh, uh, people equating the practice with sitting meditation. And like uh, believing that like when they say, you know, that practice is not going well, they are saying that the sitting meditation is, you know, not meeting the expectation. Another way that, you know, uh, that that a, a common, common complaint by, uh, by practitioners that they said they don't have enough time to practice, right. um, that they... Uh, of course, this is indicative of this idea that practice is only about the time that they were doing sitting meditation away from their usual daily activities. And oftentimes when they feel this way, when they share this complaint, um, underlying it, and sometimes they actually voice it explicitly, is that their life is in the way of their practice. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like their work is, you know, too much work or their family members, you know, placing too many demands on them. And um, it's actually breeding oftentimes without their knowing this aversion to, mm. um, to, to their own life. And um, this is uh, really important to recognize that we have this mindset um, because when, uh, we, when we go into a practice uh, like sitting meditation, and as you mentioned in your question, uh, it is very ingrained in our culture. We bring our existing habitual tendencies into our practice and also um, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world, all kinds of beliefs and assumptions, we bring them into our meditation practice. And so when practitioners approach meditation as a kind of sport uh, where they need to achieve something, um, and it basically reflects the existing way of thinking, right? Um, so when they realize that they are uh, really trying to um, get better, uh, be, maybe being competitive, <laughs> you know, wanting to be the right the the, the best meditator in the room, uh, it's not uncommon in retreats that I will have. I will I will mention that, and again, I see people nodding. Oh yeah, I'm trying to be the <laughs> the the best meditator in the room, like being competitive or wanting to do well to gain approval from oftentimes from teachers like do you see that I am like being a good meditator and yeah. then being worried about like uh, uh, feeling guilty feeling bad about not doing well like the fear of disappointing other people when they are not uh, performing when they're not doing well and um, getting stressed out about not doing a good job not 
meditating well when they are just somehow like not meeting their own expectation all these things show up in their sitting meditation and um and that is very good because you're seeing all these ways in which you get into your own way of being with the present moment as it is and that's what i was talking about in my book is like this is the illumination right. of like um when we believe like uh, oftentimes practitioners believe that sitting meditation it's about sitting there like you know with no thoughts you know and then like that successful <laughs> meditation and of course like they do all kind of things as i mentioned in my book like trying to chase away the thought you know turn them into your enemies and things like that and that too is an um you know uh, an insight into your mind if you recognize what it is that you're doing with meditation that you um that we have a tendency to um to to see um what it's uh, what's in the present moment as uh, our enemy as our obstacle rather than recognizing that it is part of the present moment and work and work with it and um so that is uh th that 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 is uh how the this practice of silent illumination is a uh, uh really a way of being uh yeah. being with ourselves uh, fully as we are in this moment and when we recognize it then we will see that like uh the practice is every moment that we can uh when yes um maybe sitting meditation uh, provides a space for us to uh, settle the mind that might help us be a little bit more clear about all these habitual reactivities and uh, also for many people the time we set aside for doing sitting meditation will uh, is like a time for them to remember the method remember how to practice and stay connected with the practice but that is by no means uh, all of the practice um right. this uh, way of being of being fully present with ourselves as we are body mind in this space moment after moment um is how we are naturally uh as we are fully reconnecting with our humanity our full humanness living our life and so we can do it in sun meditation we can do it while we're cooking our meals and cleaning right. our house and going into meetings and uh, every moment uh, recognizing it's a brand new moment and recognizing how our very entrenched habitual reactivity to what's going on in the present moment shows up maybe aversion maybe our some kind of conditioning and then it gives us the opportunity to see how that show up very clearly and when we recognize it is not helpful it we can choose to not follow and act out that habits so that we don't cause harm to ourselves cause harm to other people and so the the part of bringing the practice into our daily life um is is the core of the practice
Yeah, yeah, that, that you and you said that so well. I mean, you described it so well. Clearly, you're a teacher who knows what's going on in the minds of students, probably because you know what's going on in your mind, right? <laughs> yeah. That's yes, we have to practice so that we can yeah, right. uh, empathize with the student. Well, no, you you said it so well because that's the kind of questions you get about meditation all the time. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah. you know, I can't stop my thoughts, you know, I'm I'm anxious. I I'm I'm more anxious when I meditate than when I'm not meditating. And, mm -hmm. You know, everything. And that's only because you're taking a you're making a little space to actually see what's actually going on all the time anyway. You just didn't know is it right mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly yeah well, you, you know you detail about the you know the two words silent illumination you know there's a lot of mystery there but to some people they probably think it's not a mystery at all meaning that they just assume silent means silent and illumination means illumination and whatever you know but um you analyze the words using uh uh, a, a different Chinese translation for a way into it, into a deeper meaning, um, it, emphasizing how maybe what people think silent illumination is on first blush isn't really the way it is. You wrote that silent illumination can be translated in Chinese as serene clarity. And you point out that serene doesn't imply no sound or as in silent, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, but more like tranquil and unagitated. Um, and then you talk about that as a letting be. And you wrote about it as, as a practice of allowing your thoughts. And I like that a lot because I, I also, I always think that pr practice can go so much better if we're curious um, cause curiosity gives us a sense of allowing. I mean, if we're, we're curious, we're not saying, oh no, 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 no. I don't want to know. You know what I mean? We're, mm -hmm. we're curious about it. So you, you say allowing thoughts and then you explain, uh, illumination is not being separate, um, from the silent or tranquil part, which enables, that's the enabling us to see things as they really are, see life as it really is. And this sounds to me, and so some of my listeners probably know about uh, shamatha or calm abiding meditation, and some know about vipassana or insight meditation. So this sounds very much like an integration of calm abiding and insight. Um, can you talk more about the mechanics of this letting be and then how that illuminates? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking that. And um, yes, um, a lot of practitioners who practice, uh, who in the uh, uh, insight uh, practice can recognize uh, the practice of silent illumination readily. And, um, and of course, they are... Uh, it's all part of the Buddhist practice. And um, in the practice of silent illumination, as I mentioned in the book, they are not, it's they cultivate simultaneously rather right. than thinking about that, like I, I, will, I will cultivate one, like uh, for example, shamatha first, and then not worry about, <laughs> not worry about the insight. And then <laughs> I will like, I, uh, 
uh, uh, whereas in silent illumination, they're simultaneous. Um, what's the mechanic of it? So uh, it has to do with, uh, of course, uh, silent illumination is the method of no method. And uh, for folks who uh, start with like a very uh, scattered and agitated mind, uh, mm -hmm. they do need to start with a method. Right. So the method uh, that I I often introduce in uh, my retreats is the method of using the changing sensations of the body, breathing naturally, um, to gently anchor the mind mm -hmm. to each emerging present moment, and um, that facilitates sort of um, the the connection, the reuni the unification between body and mind, yeah. while um, we like gently settle the mind, allowing it to be like less scattered and less uh, agitated, and um, so this sort of naturally allows the mind to settle, and um, when the mind like settles, uh, we can transition into the method of no method, allowing the present moment to be now um it's easy to say hard to do right because right, we, are, right. we are so uh, uh habituated to reacting to what's going yeah. on and this is particularly uh, challenging for practitioners who have invested a lot into um calming their mind using a method by holding on to the method very tightly um, especially yeah. for practitioners who believe their their job is to hold onto the method so uh, very tightly to basically not allow thoughts to show up, not right. allow anything to like quote unquote disturb them, um, believing that that is the 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 goal. And um, so I find that practitioners who have practiced very diligently in that way um, for a long time will find the transition into silent illumination, the method, no method, particularly challenging. Right. And um, so, uh, but, you know, that, that, that just knowing that is the case often helps practitioner um, make the transition. And yeah. that's why I, I named that uh, and, and talked about that uh, process explicitly, how it is not easy and what are the, what are the pitfalls. But like uh, the mechanics of silent illumination be, uh, being cultivated simultaneously is that like as the mind begin, uh, uh, settles, um, then, then you are able to see the entrenched habits of reacting to what happens? So, right. for example, if you're very very invested in uh, trying to block out thoughts because you believe, like you know, there should be no thoughts. Like, of <laughs> right. course, there are many things going on. Like the 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 desire, the craving for the mind to be in a certain state, the state of like not having any thoughts, which you believe is <laughs> what you're supposed to get, and right. uh, and then um and then at the same time, the other side of the coin is um. Uh, aversion to thoughts like you 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 see you have this entrenched habit of like seeing thoughts as your enemy your obstacle uh, your obstacle when actually thoughts are just thoughts they come in they leave it's part of the present moment 
which is exactly what happens in life. Like we we have we have the tendency to develop in our mind that certain things should not be in the present moment. But if they are, they are part of the present moment. <laughs> and we create our suffering by telling ourselves this should not be here in the present moment, rather yeah. than seeing clearly that what is actually in the present moment and work with it. And so that we can respond skillfully. But like when we um, practice this way, uh, when we can cultivate this as the mind become a little bit more subtle, naturally, there's a little bit more clarity. When we can see this reactivity, then they allow us to not perpetuate this reactivity. We may see that the mind is about to react or it has already reacted, but next moment we can choose not to perpetuate this agitated reactivity. Then that is the, the, that is the, the silence or serenity in the sense that it's like the non reactivity. Silence is. That does not mean blocking out all thought. It means there's not no problem. You just don't. You don't need to react to it with your entrenched habits, and and that is possible because we can. We have this clarity of the very subtle and entrenched habits of reactivity that is um, very often supported by maybe some kind of misconception about practice. Uh, our our worldview, our belief, our assumption that we have uh, developed through our over our, our lifetime, and 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 they're very entrenched, very powerful. They show up, and we 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 believe it, and we we act on it right away. But it does not mean that we can't actually see them as um, a chain of thought, uh, thought after thought. And it is indeed possible as the mind becomes less reactive, silence. Um, at the same time, there is more clarity. This clarity allows us to see these uh, uh, habitual reactivity as really a uh, chain of thought so that we can release these uh, habits, habitual, uh, hab uh, habitual thought chains um, by yeah. just stopping to perpetuate it. That's why they are simultaneous. It's not like I can I, I don't need to wait until there's no thought in my mind <laughs> to have insight. They show they are they are happening at the same time every moment. Yeah, you know, I love that thought chain concept, you know, um, because that's really how it works, you know. It's like um you know, when you do have insight and and like you said, when, when there's enough space happening in meditation, because that's meditation allows that space so that you could observe the thought chain, you can actually see how, oh, when I have this thought and if I grasp onto it or when I push it away or whatever I do with it, um, depending on how I feel about it, whether I feel I want more or I want it to get out of here, um, it, it because it's a habit, it always leads to this other thought, right? But it, most of us aren't aware of that linkage. That's why it's mm -hmm. a chain. Most of us aren't yeah. aware of that linkage between this thought leads to that thought. So I just love that. And that was awesome. Um, and, and, and that's, and there's another thing that's brilliant. And I'm going to, you share this from your 
teachers and it's about this process and but it's a little mantra that I've actually adopted as one of mine now it's <laughs> let through let be let go I mm -hmm. absolutely love that I think that um you know there's a lot of what this has been said in a lot of different ways like uh <clears throat> you know um and now all of a sudden I'm blanking on his name. Uh, one of the Zen Roshis said, you know, uh, watch the thoughts come and go, leave the front door open, leave the back door open, you know, watch them come and watch them go, but just don't invite them for tea. Right. Um, <laughs> I think, oh yeah. Shunru Suzuki, I think said that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's similar to that, but I just, it's so simple. It's so every day, let, let through, let be, let go. I, it does explain this process beautifully, right? Yeah. And um, it's, uh, I think it's helpful to keep in mind as a mantra, but yeah. it's also really uh, quite important to understand like what each of them involves. Um, so like uh, letting through sounds uh, easy, but uh, oftentimes <laughs> practitioners get stuck right there because they are so habituated to blocking out their the thoughts um, and like I said earlier especially practitioners who have uh, invested a lot of the energy into cultivating a, a mind with no thoughts uh, right. or they think they believe they have made a lot of progress in that direction meditating uh, uh, that way then uh, it involves quite a bit of um, unlearning um unle un unlearning a lot of the habits or strategy they have created to quote unquote uh, succeed <laughs> in meditation right. Right, right, earlier i talked about like some people think of meditation as like a, a project or a sports that they are like devoting time <laughs> to to yes. to get really good at um like they like sitting on the cushion like they are training for a marathon or to go <laughs> yeah. to climb Mount, Mount Everest because exactly. it's normal it's natural for us to bring our existing like weight of like the drive and the motivation and having to go and and, and having to achieve it um but of course for many practitioners the most uh what frustrating them uh, most is like that their usual tools and ways don't don't work for for this practice and um so but and and uh, the the process of practice is to discover that like um uh like the, what they what they have discovered in succeeding in life very useful tools but um maybe also understanding that like in some part of it may be also getting in the way and so, uh, and and that is the the wonderful thing about Chan practice to recognize that, oh, okay, like yes, I can be very motivated, but maybe um, releasing the part, the component that get in the way, such as the idea of how this moment is supposed to be, and just really giving my best every moment, moment after moment. Um, and so, so like a letting, letting, letting through, um, you like just being able to let through, allow whatever happens, thoughts, emotions, stories, memory to come through. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's like a really important part of the, of the practice. 
Um, so, and, but like some people, a lot of people, um, kind of just skip through the let be as a, okay, let be, and then <laughs> let go. And they are in a hurry to let go. And then ah. oftentimes they are in a hurry to like make it go away because again, they are still attached to the notion of what I'm doing here is to cultivate a mind with nothing going on. So like, uh, so right. like they, 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 they begrudgingly let through it's like okay Rebecca you said let okay I'm letting this through but like just for a little moment and then I'm gonna make it go away um but actually like that is another way we get in the way of ourselves so letting through the, just watching how hard it is for you to like let through is very um illuminating to see how much resistance you have cultivated to of the natural flow of the present moment but also like uh letting that's why there is let through let be let what is the letting be letting be is like um it's very common for practitioners to understand understand like letting be as like okay i'm just like see like okay they're fine. go 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 you just go and like uh like being detached from uh, what's going on that is not the practice of silent illumination Letting be, letting be here really means to be with whatever happens fully. That's why I always say that, like, uh, that means allowing um, the thought and feeling to be fully felt and seen and heard as they are moment after moment. Really, it's about reconnecting with yourself as you are fully moment after moment and that is crucial otherwise if the uh if you go about the letting be by just like becoming like an observer or yeah. like keeping your thoughts and feelings at arm's length then that you you're not fully engaged with yourself uh truly reconnecting with yourself because then it is only by allowing yourself to be fully experienced that you can realize for yourself how truly every moment is brand new um like the how thoughts are like really empty and impermanent they're not concept you actually experience it directly and then and actually you the letting go will be easy like you see that how of course you know it's it's ready to move on and you just let it move on. There's no need for you to do anything to push them to go away and um, to, to, to be able to, um, to learn to do that and see how truly we are, we get in the way of ourselves we, uh, by, uh, through, through these entrenched habitual reactivity at every step of the way in multiple, multiple ways and, um, and by recognizing all these uh, unhelpful habits that we can also see how they show up so that we can un unlearn them, release them, and, um, and we can become more and more fully uh, connected with ourselves. And so that, that, that's why uh, it's not just a mantra, it's helpful to remember yeah. that that is what we do moment to moment in our practice, in silent illumination, in our life. And, you know, the letting be is, I liked your 
way of, uh, you know, obviously the your ex explanation of letting through and letting go was obvious, not obvious, but was deep the way you presented it. The letting be, the, the twist on that was very important. I think it's subtle, but very important. It's like the difference between that passivity of letting be, oh, I'll just let it be, um, does not involve the engagement with it. Like if I let it be, I have to let it be with me, right? I have to, I have to engage with it uh, to fully live it out before I can like push it away and, <laughs> and let it go. So I really liked how you explained that. And it, and it actually reminded me of the, the stay with that just as that, um, uh, mm -hmm. that was another one of your phrases or, um, is stay with that just as that, um, you, if you're, if, if something shows up in your moment by moment awareness, like you said, in life or in meditation, um, it's, it's very easy to dismiss it, chase it away, grab onto it. But you, if you just stay with it as it, right. Or stay with that as that, or stay with it as it, um, it's a whole different experience, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it means by being fully present. And um, that's why like, uh, you're very perceptive in, you know, seeing the importance of the twist of letting be because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, just let it be, you know, like, you know, be at peace and just, <laughs> yeah. um, and, 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 and it's no, 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 like, and oftentimes they translate it into a little life and just like, let, 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 like, let, let pe let people do whatever and then sometimes yeah. you like the, let let people like let people take advantage of you and then they were like whoa whoa no 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 like, no that's not what it's saying that's not right. what it's saying it's cultivating this moment to moment clarity right. of what is going on so that you on you can see truly what is happening instead of through you uh, uh the you, the lens of your assumptions preconceived notions um that create all kind of distortions um because when we don't see what's actually happening clearly um then we are likely to um respond in a way that uh, is not entirely ap appropriate or suitable um right. so so like uh when we, we often talk about like skillful means like the right. skillfulness comes from being able to see uh the entirety of the present moment as it is rather yeah. than being filtered by our preconceived notions right right um you know uh, now I probably shouldn't have saved this for near the end of our conversation because <laughs> it may be the most important set of teachings in your book. Um, and that is what causes our suffering. You hinted at this about our reactivity and our, our incorrect, you know, labeling of things. Uh, but this is sort of the meat behind the second noble truth. And you use the word that your teacher used, vexations. You know, that word sounds like a spell to me. <laughs> and, and actually, it is sort of a spell or curse we put on ourselves, isn't it? Um, I, I typically refer to the vexations as, by the Sanskrit kleshas because I studied so long in the Tibetan 
tradition. And one of my teachers used to say, oh, he used to say, oh, I was having a Klesha attack, which I always liked. It's like it comes up out of nowhere and it takes you away. Um, but it takes you away because of the habit of thought, the habit of reactivity. But back to the point. Um, so the word vexations is a spot on because I, I, you know, I know the word, but I, I decided to look it up in the dictionary and the dictionary de definition is both something that causes annoyance and the state of mind that results from being annoyed. Now that's so Buddhist, isn't it? The, the combining mm -hmm. both of the annoyance and the state of mind with the state of mind having equal or more weight than the actual thing out there that's the annoyance the thing that's happening and it's straight from the dictionary but in your book <laughs> you teach it like this so as a formula you say the present moment plus vexation equals suffering but you go much deeper into the habits of mind that cause our suffering the last whole half of the book i maybe I don't know if it's completely the half of the book, but it's dedicated to the type of mental habits that get us into our disturbed uh, states, you know, having our klesha attacks. Um, you call them modes of operation and you detail the seven in individual chapters. You talk about how they show up, how we can become aware of them, how they cause suffering, how meditation can help us discover our own you know, personal strength of modes. Um, so I know we don't have time to go into detail about all of these since I left this for the end, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so can we consider this a tease or incentive to buy the book? But can you give a brief sentence or two about each? Um, sure. Yes. Um, well, like, uh, the modes of operation actually I have alluded to that earlier in our conversation here. Right. That like uh, oftentimes when practitioners uh, felt that they are not uh, doing very well in their meditation or uh, 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 things are not go, uh, the, the, the practice is not going as well as they are supposed to and uh, they think something's wrong. And actually that is the perfect opportunity to gain insight into themselves. Right. And because the way they are uh, perceiving what's going on, they're reacting, how what they're doing in the meditation uh, reflects their um, entrenched habitual tendency or what I call the mode of operation because it is not something we do only in our meditation. We are bringing the way we live our life right. into our meditation. That's why we have we have our we call it we have our mode of operations, and then we bring them into our uh, meditation. And so when we um, recognize these modes of operation uh, showing up in our meditation, then we actually it helps us gain insight into how we have been doing that in our life. Right. And then actually, when we gain that clarity, we can see, oh, okay. Like now I, you know, now you also know, not only do you know what it is that you're doing, you also know how to unlearn those habits. So right. like uh -huh. the, like a craving mode that um, I talked about first has to do with um, the, our very entrenched habits of um, craving, uh, wanting what we find to be pleasant um, right. to 
to to be repeated, to want more of it, instead of seeing that every moment is the coming together of causes and conditions. So, for example, when we have sitting meditation practice, where we have a very nice, uh, enjoyable meditation, and um, that is oftentimes because the body and mind relax, like your situation in your life is nice. And um, you are able to use the method that that in that session, and so they all come together to give you that meditative experience. But the common habit is like, um, I want all my meditation to be, to be like that, right? <laughs> and and uh, it's not uncommon actually for practitioners to spend every meditation session from then on repeating, trying to recreate that, and of course. Because precisely they are doing that, they're not in the present moment as it is. Then it's just suffering rather than um, yeah. being able to uh, engage in the prep practice of being in the present moment. And so it's pointing out how um, you know the the, the habits of uh, like trying to freeze an experience that we find pleasant into a, a fixed entity. And believe we can hold on to it and re- like and and want more of it. Uh, how they get in the way of ourselves? You, like I guess a lot of people can recognize how yes. that show up in their life as well. And um, the version mode uh, is uh, I, the subtitle of that is making thoughts our enemies. I think many uh, meditation practitioners can recognize it. Oftentimes, this has to do with the belief that the goal of meditation is to make the mind a certain way, especially to create a mind with no thoughts. And so turning um, what shows up in the mind to the enemy. And so it's related to, uh, 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 and it can show up in people's life, uh, uh, in, peop- uh, in people's life, like, you know, identifying, believing that their life is supposed to be a particular way. They create this idea. Right. And then like, uh, and of course, every moment, is brand new and everyone is coming together of causes and conditions and um so and when they see that there's certain things that shows up in the present moment in their life that does not fit the expectation um they react with aversion like turning them like see them as enemy to like you know they need to get rid of them yeah. and of course it's not a not 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 it's a, it's a lot of uh, of suffering and um, I want to say a little bit more about this mode because mode is a very common because, uh, like I had mentioned a number of times, that a lot of uh, meditation practitioners believe that is what they are supposed to do is to create a, a mind with no thought, and um, they they that lead them to turn thoughts into the into an enemy. enemy yeah. um, uh, what what they're doing is also. Uh, perpetuating uh, the habit of aversion and so mm-hmm. um so like in meditation um a lot of people believe that they are you know like they are doing meditation to find some peace so find some calmness <laughs> uh but what they are inadvertently cultivating is hatred they are moment to moment cultivating this hatred towards thoughts that show up in their mind and uh, believing that everything that is in the way of getting to that calm, serene, peaceful state is their enemy. They want to get rid of them. 
And uh, so we really need to watch out for this mode of operation because we, if we are not careful, we can inadvertently be uh, cultivating a more hateful mind than a yeah. peaceful mind. Yeah. Um, so uh, a trans trans mode, uh, not a very common uh, <laughs> a, a, a <laughs> mode of operation, also related to. Um, uh, a common misconception about what meditation is about. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people believe that meditation is about creating, cultivating a particular state of mind, and um, in, in, in some uh, kind of some kind of trance um, uh, that that they're supposed to enter, where they feel like very peaceful, nothing happening, because like uh, they hear the word peace associated with meditation they believe that that's what they are supposed to be experiencing in meditation and um uh we are very good at uh our minds can be very clever so when we like got the order that like i'm supposed to create the states we <laughs> create the states uh and and, and kind of like a, I I call that like a foggy mind we create fogginess yeah in our mind so that we don't really we, like we don't experience anything that's going on it doesn't mean that they're not going on but they're just like behind a layer of fog that we have deliberately created in our in our mind without yeah. our knowing so we we are very foggy about <laughs> what we're doing <laughs> in creating our foggy mind and um so uh i when oftentimes when i when i mention this i will have like most people in the region telling me that in shock that that they have been, that's what they have been doing for years <laughs> um, and, and and it's often like a reflection of um how people have been operating in their life because it's not uncommon for folks who are attracted to meditation um because they thought it's a place where they can be away from the difficulties and challenges in their life situation yeah so kind like of a, like a escape yeah yeah, so um, so they that if you if you uh, engage in this trans mode in your meditation, chances are you are also engaging in this mode of operation in your life, trying to like like avoid um, uh, a hide away from from what's difficult in your life, and um and and it's helpful to see that you to to see clearly that that's what you're doing. And so that you you know what you need to do, uh, which is different from hiding without knowing that you are hiding. Like you you can know that <laughs> clearly that you are hiding, and right. um, it's it's very different. And um, so the problem solving mode has to do with like uh, you know how, like you mentioned earlier, uh, in our uh, in our society, besides being a very consumerist culture, like uh, we are very much praised for being a good. A strong uh, problem solver. So if your uh, identity is very much built on being a a, a good problem solver, uh, or that's your role in your life, maybe in your family or in your work, uh, that can be a very strong habit. And then you bring that into um, other aspects of your life and turn everything into a problem for you to solve. <laughs> 
And so that that the habit can show up in your meditation as well. Like uh, so, like uh, when their when their thought it's a problem. How do I you know do, how do I solve this problem of having thoughts?、Yeah. Uh, and and so when you see that kind of thought happens, like this is a problem, that's a problem, and then that means your chances are you are doing it to uh, uh, to everything in your life, including. Most problematically, that turning other people in your life into problems.、Um, <laughs> yeah, they are they are people. They are not problems. Also, turning yourself into a problem.、Uh, I often tell practitioners that you are not a problem. You know, like you are you. <laughs> so,、uh, so like、uh, that. That's uh, that's uh, a common, also very common. And、uh, in the intellectualizing mode has also very common,、uh, particularly. Uh, uh, popular,、uh, but not restricted to practitioners who、um, have who have done a lot of reading in in、yeah. the Dharma, and、um, so and、uh, and and they will bring. But it don't, you don't need to either. It's also a habit whether you have、uh, read a lot of Dharma or not. It is the habit of like uh, using uh, concepts. To substitute、yeah. direct experience of the present moment,、right. so rather than the beginner's mind,、uh, this curiosity uh, uh, that we bring to each brand new moment, there is this、um, uh, habit of like you already know through all these concepts, this knowledge. So、um, instead of being with the present moment as it is, with all its complexity and nuances,、um, we You give it a name, give it a label,、yeah. uh, maybe also add on a little bit of your theorizing. I already know,、uh, rather than uh, uh, directly experiencing what's going on. And also, often that is what、um, how we do, how we、uh, how how we are in our life, using our intellectual knowledge to、um, just sort of kind of、um, paper over. The present moment situation, instead of allowing ourselves to be fully engaged with, you can say, the messiness of life, and、right. um, kind of like be a bit,、uh, and so we end up being a bit、um, distance,、uh, disengaged、yeah. from、yeah. from others, and we do that without our knowing. We believe, you know, we we are with it because, but、uh, but we are doing it through our concept. A、uh, quietism mode is a very common mode, especially with. Are very dedicated meditation practitioners、um, because they really uh, uh, they uh, they often have an opportunity to get into these very、um, still mind state and、um, misbelieving that is that's it that's where they're supposed to be and、right. so they、uh, in this exp-、um, and of course is often. Related to this idea that your practice、uh, is about getting to a place where、uh, nothing's going on in your mind,、uh, mm. that's the prize that you are going right, for. Right, right. The goal, and so like the yeah, it's the combination of these、uh, this misconception、um, that that can get one stuck in quietism, like uh, uh, what Master Shenyan talk about a lot. This dark cave. The believing that this this ma this this space where like nothing is going on is where you want to be,、uh, it's like also a form of、uh, attachment attaching to a particular state of mind, and、right. um, 
it is uh, and 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 uh, it's very difficult for people to get out of this cave. So it's best not to go there. Uh, yeah. But like uh, recognizing that you're going there by noticing these sort of like a uh, um, misconception about a practice um, is particularly important. And this kind of mode also often show up in people, how people live their life, like to kind of just really disengage from a building of thick wall between themselves and the world to try to create this, this quiet um, space, this dark cave that they, that they can be away from everyone uh, to protect that, that, that stillness um, that they think is it. Um, that is quite quite common, and so of course that that is uh, the opposite of being fully engaged in life, and um, and the forgetting emptiness note is like uh, like I said like it's forgetting uh, uh, that every moment is brand new. So um, when we when we get to when we experience uh, something in in our uh, meditation, um, it's uh, you. you it's, it's uh, these kind of practitioners will see like, oh, that's it, I got it. <laughs> like, what, what is the it that you got? And uh, it doesn't keep people from believing they got it. And um, so, and, and that's like that moment they have uh, fallen into the habits of believing that like um, uh, certain moments can be, it, it can, uh, they turn, they fall into the habits of turning uh, uh, turning a, 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 a moment into a fixed entity and and really mm -hmm. that that's something that they can hold on to, to getting emptiness. And um, so it is uh, uh, not an uncommon one uh, for, for a practitioner. And of course, like it shows them in their life, like, like this is it, you know, I got somewhere, like I, and also the belief that like, all I need to do is to get this then I will be happy. Mm -hmm. uh, I will be set. Uh, so this kind of revealing that this kind of subtle but quite pervasive thought habits that can get in the way of our being fully with each moment uh, as it is. Body mind in this space, every moment being brand new. Uh, so that that is so of course this is not an exhaustive list These no are the, no no uh, the popular ones that i have seen uh, uh dedicated practitioners run into yeah and it's actually it's absolutely wonderful in in that it's it's about everyday life too it's like if you if you become aware of this stuff going on in your meditation then it's obviously how you're doing life and and vice versa um, you bring it to your meditation as well. So that was a, it was a great list and it, it, it is, uh, it's sort of like psychological states or something as well too. I think it's, it's excellent. Um, so yeah, I've took a lot of your time today, Rebecca, thank you for running through the, the modes of operation or these ways that we create vexations for ourselves. Um, I'll put a link to your book and to your website in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to mention that we didn't talk about or anything else you'd like to mention about something that's coming up uh, with you in a teaching or workshop or anything? Well, uh, I definitely want to mention one last thing is sure. that like uh, a lot of practitioners, when they realize that they have these modes of operation, 
they start hating their mode of operation. <laughs> and then there's, of course, a very entrenched habit of aversion. aversion. And uh, it's quite important to remember that when you can see this mode of operation, that's wonderful. That means that you are cultivating clarity of what's going on in your mind. And that gives us the opportunity to unlearn and release these habits. So whatever happens, it's good practice. Yes, and right. that's really important to keep that in mind. Otherwise, sometimes when we learn about these things and then we can become, we, we have the habit of beating ourselves up and, yeah. and, and getting discouraged, like watch out for the uh, common response of like hating our habits. Like actually, where the more we can recognize um, this kind of different kind of mode of operation, that means we are practicing well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it is. If you identified it, you 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 uh, you had good practice, and that's excellent. Mm-hmm. That is exactly, yeah. absolutely right. So mm-hmm. so thank you, Rebecca. I mean, another awesome book. Um, I I can't recommend uh, you know recommend it enough. Um, I showed Rebecca at the beginning of our uh, recording how many little post its and things I had. Um, it's just it's just a wonderful book, and and it reminded me of your previous book, and that I came away remembering a lot of lines. So thanks again for offering it to me and to my listeners and to everybody out there. May it benefit everybody. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Rebecca and we'll check out her book, Illumination, A Guide to the Buddhist Method of No Method. Next up, as usual, some announcements. The first announcement is the next Introduction to Buddhism course begins Thursday, February 22nd, 2024 at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, virtual via Zoom. The course is a real-life approach to living the Noble Eightfold Path based on the course text, Everyday Buddhism, Real-Life Teachings and Practices for Real Change by me, Wendy Shinyo Halet. The course is free to Everyday Buddhism community and Everyday Sangha members. If you are not a community or Sangha member and don't wish to join either, the suggested donation is $25. The course runs nine weeks from Thursday, February 22nd through Thursday, April 18th, 2024. We will need a donation or request for scholarship to ensure your registration. If you join the membership community or Everyday Sangha, you can cancel your participation in those and the intro course at any time. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. If you are unable to donate or join at the member or Sangha level, please contact me at Wendy Shinyo. Please contact me at Wendy Shinyo at everyday-buddhism.com. There is a link to the details and to register for the course in the show notes. Next, we just began a new study of The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva this past Saturday, February 10th, in the Everyday Sangha. As you know, the Sangha is a private donation-supported group that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Our meetings consist of a service 
first, including traditional vow recitations and other invocations like refuge, bodhisattva vows, etc., and chanting and a short meditation period. The service introduces a more ritualistic or liturgical approach into the structure of our meeting, much like you would find at a non-virtual Buddhist temple, church, or sangha. It includes a Dharma talk by one of the practice leaders or myself, and possibly a Dharma glimpse by one of our sangha members. After the service, we open it up to discussion of the current book study or of anything that was inspired by one of the Dharma talks. Please consider joining the Sangha at this time to be a part of the new study and practice and part of a warm and welcoming Sangha community. You can learn more about the Sangha by viewing a the bonus YouTube podcast where myself, Bradley Janayo Sensei, and Terry Zenkai Hoskin, our practice leaders, talk about what the Sangha and what everyday Buddhism is all about. You can also support this podcast and the other activities of Everyday Buddhism by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to all members-only podcasts, an education series, the Introduction to Buddhism course, the Buddhist Book Club, and a private group on a non-Facebook platform. If you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha or register for the Introduction to Buddhism course. Go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on either the tab that says join members community or join everyday sangha or register for the introduction to buddhism course or you can join through patreon at patreon.com slash everyday buddhism links to joining the everyday sangha membership community intro course whatever are posted in the show notes i thank all of you who contribute this podcast the community and sangha depend solely on your donations to continue to exist. I do not seek sponsors for the podcast, and I don't ask for financial commitments through a paid podcast membership. So the work I do and the cost needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded, except for your donations. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or on my website's donate tab. Or if you just want to buy me a coffee, click on the coffee cup link on the website. You can also find all the links in the show notes. And thanks to to all of you who write in with comments and questions. As the latest bonus member podcast illustrates, I read your emails and may even pick your question to feature in a bonus podcast. Another way you can help is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It's important to share the podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment so people will know why you love Everyday Buddhism. That's it for the announcements. So until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. (laughs) 